Welcome to the Gary Aid Show on the Cave. Available at ktalkradio.com, the Talk Radio app, Apple CarPlay, or by saying, hey Alexa, play Talk Radio. Want to join in the conversation? We'd love to hear from you. Call us at 845-734-CAVE. Now, here's your host, Gary Aid. Alrighty, what's going on? Welcome into the Gary Aid Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. Online at cavetalkradio.com. Gary Aid, Dave D'Agostino, hopefully will join us a little bit. Having a little bit of a phone difficulty today. We'll try to get that sorted out. In the meantime, 845-734-CAVE is the phone number. 845-734-2283. It's great to have you aboard. So today's opening rant. Um, here's what we got today. So... I've been listening, I, you know, I'm a big fan of audiobooks, right? Like, I listen to a lot of them, listening to a lot of uh, baseball history, specifically Ted Williams' Yogi Berra recently, so I thought it was kind of auspicious that uh, Rich Anselmo's update there was Hank Aaron-related, so I got a lot of that on my mind. Uh, but um, <laughs> before we get to all that stuff, as far as current events is concerned, obviously tonight's the national championship game. You got UNC against Kansas. I know uh, my friend Paul McKeskey, former Jayhawk, he's going to be rooting hard for his alma mater. Of course, I don't really have a dog in this fight. I was kind of hoping that Coach K would uh, get it done at the end, but obviously that didn't happen. Great game between Duke and North Carolina. Um, I think that when you look at this championship game, it's hard to scrub from your mind the ease with which Kansas made big runs against a yes depleted but still very good Villanova team when you watch that game and you follow that game uh, Villanova was kind of knocked out right from the beginning they spent the rest of the game making a handful of attempts to try to push back into it they did it a couple of different times but uh, Jay Wright said it in his post game comments when you get down that much to a great team which Kansas is very hard to come back because I mean even in a game like basketball it's a game of runs everyone knows that it's a cliche but it's true you you, it it takes gas to it takes energy significant energy and significant mental energy and focus to execute a significant run that allows you to come back from a significant deficit like that against a good opponent and usually that's why comebacks are, are somewhat rare Usually they come up short because it's hard. I mean, the, the deck is stacked against you. So I, I just, it's hard for me as far as a prediction is concerned, given I don't watch a ton of these teams throughout most of the year and I kind of learn of what I know about these teams along with most of the rest of the country over the five odd weeks of the tournament. Um, it, it's hard to shake singular impressions where you watch a game or you watch part of a game and maybe it's only the first or second time you've seen a particular team or player or or whatever and it's so jarring like when you watch something like what Kansas put on against um, against Villanova this past weekend you, it's hard to shake that out of your out of your memory and try to be in some type of perspective. But I mean, because the truth is, these are 
two really good teams. Kansas has been kind of there the whole year. UNC sort of had a late season surge gelling together. So, you know, my, my gut reaction is to favor Kansas in this one. And for what it's worth, I did have Kansas at the start going to the national title game and losing to Kentucky. So I did get half the national title bracket right. But um, it's hard to look past what they've done all year. So I want to give North Carolina a chance, and I do, because in my opinion, the best team I've watched all – the best player, excuse me, I've watched all year – is R.J. Davis, the guard for Carolina. Uh, he's been absolutely sensational. Now, again, when I say all year, I pretty much mean throughout this tournament. Um, but he, he's been sensational. In fact, I think there's a good chance he'll win the outstanding player of the tournament as well. I think he should. Um, but I, I just feel like Kansas has a little extra, a little something more, if you will, over the top that I don't know if UNC is going to quite be able to match. But you know what? That's why they play the game. Of course, that game's tonight. Looking forward to that. Now, getting back to some of this sports history, we got a lot more to get to. We'll see if we can get Dave on uh, later on. But um, we got a lot of other things to get to today. We got some Yankee stuff. We got Joe Morgan from the Daily Wire um, talking uh, national title game. Um, we have James Kelly talking center fielders. The Utah Jazz, maybe. Maybe moving on from Rudy Gobert and the retirement of an all-time great NFL running back. So we got all those things still to get to. Scott Tracy, of course, is coming up next with the speed trap. So we got all that to look forward to. A few more minutes here before we take our first break. So I just want to say this. uh, Going back and looking at the way um, that... (sighs) God, how do you say this? You look at the way that Ted Williams... And Hank Aaron and Yogi Berra, like I, I'm, I've been reading a lot about these people recently, listening to a lot of audiobooks about them. And, you know, all of them, particularly Williams, very flawed, right? Very, very flawed. And today would be seen as someone worthy of being canceled. See, this is, this is the power, right? And it, maybe this is what I wanted to get at today with, with this little uh, sidestep into history for a second. So I thought it was auspicious that Anselmo went down the path with, with Aaron today. Um, the culture determines who becomes, a, like, the ability of a hero to rise. So, like, culture has to be primed, has to be willing to accept heroes, warts and all. And the problem is, I believe social media has created such a always-on, all-the-time social media and mobile media, mobile technology, that everything is at our fingertips at every moment of every day, and there's no mystery. See, the, the key ingredient to any great hero is there's mystery, there's unknown there's mythos. There, there's legend. That, that stuff, you know, the, the reason the saying of it's better left unsaid exists is because a lot of times the best way to keep a good reputation is to not be well known. And I think that when you look at the way some of these guys from the earlier decades of the previous century, the guys who have attained and maintained kind of that idol hero status 
you know, whether it's Williams or Aaron or Ruth or, or Garrig or DiMaggio or any of these guys, because when they were building their reputations, there was only so much known about them, you know, beyond their public persona, beyond what was seen on the field and covered on the field. Um, and it just kind of became like they became like legends. Uh, Michael Jordan, I would argue, was the last great athlete to sort of benefit from that. Uh, shortly after that, it became much, much harder. I mean, Shaq, to some degree, maybe did. But, like, that generation of, of players, the mid to late 90s guys, that was it. After that, man, everything's above deck. And I think it has a lot to do with why LeBron is polarizing, Kobe is polarizing. Uh, in the NFL, um, you know, Tom Brady... Uh, maybe not polarizing. He he might he might uh, just has so much success, but you know certainly it, it's it's different than than the hero status that Williams, that DiMaggio, that Mickey Mantle, terribly flawed man, that a lot of these guys achieved. You know, Johnny Unitas achieved that. Jerry Rice, Joe Montana, a lot of these guys. Uh, you know, basketball. We mentioned Michael Jordan, Will Chamberlain, uh, Bill Russell. You know, there's others. I mean, it's hard to attain that now. I, I, in fact, I think it might even be impossible, uh, to be perfectly honest, because of the uh, because of the social media. So, it, it's it's difficult. And so, listening back to this book uh, about Ted Williams and Yogi Berra's life, and to hear the way they're talked about even today, they have an advantage that no one else is going to have. Which is, you know what? They were so insulated by the relative lack of information about their personal lives in their day. And people were just, as a result, because they weren't deluged with that nonstop, they were just more likely and more willing to just kind of look the other way when something less than flattering did emerge about one of these people. You know, whether it was a divorce with Williams or whether it was the drinking with Mantle or any of that stuff. So I think that that's an interesting thing that I've learned over these last couple of days that I thought, you know, some of you might find interesting as well. So I just wanted to share that. All right. So after our little uh, trip down memory lane here and our little psychological, socio-ecological exploration, let's get back to the matter at hand. We got Dave coming up in a second. He says he's all set. So we're going to take a quick break, come back, do the speed trap. Dave D'Agostino joins us along with Officer Tracy. It's the Gary Age Show here on The Cave. Let's get back to the Gary Age Show on The Cave, Orange County's conversation station. All right. We're back, getting ready to talk with Officer Scott Tracy on the speed trap. In fact, there he is. He's ready to roll. He's ready to roll, and so is Dave. Um, so it's good Tomorrow's to have you terrible. on the program. What's up, Scott? Well, truth be told, I had to have a private uh, interrogation with the driver, D'Agostino, which oh. caused the delay. Right. And uh, he, he's already lawyered up, so... That so those electric, those electric cars—they—they—they they, they run out of battery. You see the commercials. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Oh my well, goodness. today I'm going to take uh, more of a—it's going to be an interrogation, gentlemen. I'm tired of your uh, your uh, 
your snarky attitudes regarding sports and other and athletes and teams and whatnot. So I thought I'd turn the table on the two of you. Okay. And make it about you. Uh-oh. Uh, no lawyers are allowed in your interrogation rooms, but I do expect the truth. All right. Are you ready? We are ready. What do we got? Okay. We'll start with you. Uh, I won't say defendant aid, at least not yet. Uh-oh. Mr. Aid. Yes. Who was the one person, and I, I told you about this at the end of last week. Yep. Who was the one person, above all else, that you would say was the most integral in your pursuing a path in your sports-related field and why? Not the person or people who ingrained in you your love of sports or competition. Rather, the person who knowingly or by example inspired you to say to yourself, I really think I want to do this. Well... It certainly wasn't knowingly, but I can pinpoint the person. Uh, well, maybe it was. He was sort of a mad scientist. So it was in 2000, I guess it was uh, seven. I was uh, taking a, you know, I was a student at Rockland Community College at the time doing my first two years. And um, I was there with the intention of being a history teacher. So I was pursuing a lot of liberal arts classes, taking a lot of history classes and all that stuff. And they required some type of elective in the communications field for jet for gen ed so i said okay well let me find a a course on in this catalog that sounds like an easy a i'm on rate my professor looking up how difficult certain professors are and i'm looking at the course catalog and i settle on this class called broadcast writing taught by a uh richard Connolly. i was like oh well, let's rate my professor says it's easy it's a piece of cake it sounds interesting says so i'll take that so the essence of this class was basically uh, you, you're writing um, for television or for radio. So everything about it was concise to the point. And so first of all, I loved that. It was the first time I had ever been exposed to a type of writing that wasn't the ritualistic, rigid, structured blah that is what they teach you in school, which is you know useless essays. Like, you know, that, I always felt that when they wanted five pages, I could answer the question in five paragraphs. So it always bothered me that I had to, like, you know, elongate things unnecessarily. And this was the exact opposite. But then about a week into the class, he notices my outspokenness, I guess, uh, as, as well as someone else's in class, pairs us together. Wait, wait, Gary, you were, you were outspoken? I know, it's shocking, I know. Big, big surprise. <laughs> um, but he notices me and one other guy in class who we seem to have a lot of, like, positive... Uh, negative tension between us. Uh, we we were opposite ends of the fandom spectrum, but equally outspoken. So he puts us in this like little recording room and tells us to like do a podcast. And that was my first introduction to radio of any kind of or audio of any kind. And immediately I was like, you know what? This is perfect for me. I can say what I want, and that that theoretically could be a job i could actually make money for having an opinion oh this is the best idea I've ever created so that, that that would be the story of that one for me and from that point forward for the next year i had sort of a uh 
an internal battle with myself. Because even then, I knew, eh, I'm, I'm signing up for an uphill battle if I go down this road. So it, it, the, the teaching job's the better job, uh, as you know, your parents would see it. But I was like, you know, I, so for in the next year, I really had to debate which way I was going to go. And when I transferred to Oswego, that was when I, choosing the school was my determining factor. Once I kind of determined, okay, I'm going to go broadcasting, then it kind of also determined where I finished up my four years. But yeah, that's how that happened. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Uh, Mr. D'Agostino, same question. Who was that special person that really lit that fire and caused you to say, I think I really want to do this in the sports-related arena? Yeah. Well, you guys know most of my background is, I mean, from from birth till now, it's been sports. So it's hard to, to break it up. But, you know, you mentioned ingrained. Ingrained would be easy. That's my parents. Um, one oh, yeah. without the other. When they made it work, they, they, I mean, they supported. They, you know, let me do my thing. And that was great in terms of how we took that now, how, how I took that sports career to, you know, with, with, professional baseball, college uh, coaching. I would say our, my current state with what we do, we run several businesses around sports and they all tend to come about organically where we're, we're solving a problem like we're doing with tournaments now and whatnot. And I would say I would give that credit to my wife um, that every time that we continue to move uh, move our business in an additional direction, it's usually complementing the other businesses and none of it's ego-driven in a way. So I would say her, um, and, and how that comes about is just through conversations. We joke on the show how the, the top fives come up through basically family, family, I'll say arguments loosely, but family discussions about sports. And that's how we come up with Gary's top five to, to really solve the family problem more than anything. So he should bill us for counseling that we're saving <laughs> in that regard. I would say the direction right now is that we're in. My wife always says that my initials direction with coaching um, was a distraction for me. It wasn't challenging in, in, in regard to testing all the areas of my brain. And what we do right now certainly keeps me hopping. It's like a puzzle and a mystery all in one. Sometimes pieces are missing. Sometimes we got too much. And it, it constantly, it allows me to, to do what was ingrained in me. And that's, I like to impact kids um, and families. And she kind of sparked that initial drive that my parents pushed of you know doing it through coaching, which was kind of I don't want to say siloed, but it did allow me to reach out to these other areas. And now we've got so many branches on the tree, where we're touching so many families and whatnot. And I give her total credit for that because every time, every time I, I try to quietly complain now, and I I started a journal, but I'm thinking she's reading my journal. with you, <laughs> quietly complain. She challenges me with, "We'll solve it, figure it out." And uh, and so I give yeah. her all the credit for that. So it stops me from from bitching, and uh, has basically created what we do right now. So I'll give her props for that. There you go. Happy happy wife, happy life. That's right. And that kind of leads into my second question: If you had a magic wand, uh, what do you wish you could change about your industry uh, for the better? Oh God, that's easy. Mr. D'Agostino. It's easy. I want, can I hear Gary's first? That's, it's easy. That seems like the no, hard one. No, no, no. 
Oh, I can't hear. Wow. Okay. You, you guys no. have two I'll words. Go. I, I, I'll go with. I'll go. Right. You. you know what, Gary? Yes. I'm a. I'm amazed that it says. I, I'm. I'm curious because I think I know him pretty well, but I don't know what he's going to say. Oh yeah, this is this is easy. Um, I was surprised. I I thought I would have thought that. Well, well, Dave would have. Uh, Gary, go ahead. Well, here here's why it's easy. The reason yeah. I'm doing uh, and we're doing this the hardest way possible as a startup business is because the regular path that should be there isn't. And what I mean by that is how many sports talk stations with local talent do you really know? How many radio stations in general that have actual local talent, full-time talent being paid a uh, – area average wage do you really know you can probably count them on one hand in in this area and have fingers left over and that in lies the problem with with the broadcast industry it's so top heavy it's basically internships and minimum wage and then network television network radio and the top 25 markets or so and that's basically it and then the rest of the industry is left fighting over Probably 10% of the jobs are in that otherwise barren middle between those two extremes. And basically 95% of the people that are in this industry are fighting for those 10% of jobs. It's not sustainable. Uh, consolidation, national syndication, while certainly very uh, practical, and we use it uh, plenty here with The Cave uh, through our partnership with Sports Byline, it, it's absolutely to blame for the lack of opportunity for people to live a comfortable or reasonably comfortable lifestyle in this industry without having to be like an army uh, family moving around every two or three years. I'm sure that had a lot to do with why Dave got out of coaching after a while. It, he, that that lifestyle yeah, and, is not sustainable. And, and, and truth be told, my first go-around with radio, was the that was the reason I, I had to give it up if I wanted to you know, have a family. Right. Well, and, yeah, you know, I mean, a, a stable family. Right. You well, can't move both people around. Well, that's exactly know, like, right. That's exactly right. If you want to buy a house and have a family, you, you, you can't be, you know, moving every few years. I know a guy who, uh, has been in this business for, God, he's older than, um, he, I think he's in his early 60s. And, like, he's been, He's probably lived in about 30 cities. He never married. He never bought a house. And, like, learning, I learned about his story when I was probably just getting started. And it really tempered my, um, not my enthusiasm, but my willingness to, you know, kind of continue on that without a uh, known destination. If I could look into the future and say, okay, if I stick with this for seven years, I'll end up in a nice job in St. Louis or some other decent city where I'll be for 20 years uh, making a decent living. If I could have known that uh, going in, I probably would have stuck it out. But not knowing that and seeing what Stu had gone through for all those decades, I said, I got to find a different way to do this. This doesn't work for me. So that would be, that's why I say it's easy. It's not even a question. It, I would change the lack of middle class jobs in the broadcast industry make them more plentiful and accessible and, and viable. That that's the that's without a doubt what I would do. Very good. Thank you, Gary. Uh Dave, it's up to you. If you had a magic yeah, wand, no, I was what do you what 
what do you wish you could change about your industry for the better? I have a vague idea, to be honest, of what you do. Based on what I heard on revolve around the kids. Um, So if I had a magic wand, I'd wave it over kids. I'll I'll just deal with America. And I would have them play every sport get them lessons for every sport with reputable people until the age of 10. And the reason I say that is these kids are so, um, they get so turned around by all these fake gurus as they enter sports and they never stop and they become like training monkeys almost. And they never understand how to play the game in part because there's no regulation on who these trainers are and parents don't check into it. So I would have every kid play every sport they could get them lessons for each sport. So teach them the basics in baseball, how to throw properly, how to catch, how to hit basketball, how to dribble and shoot and pat, teach them a solid foundation. Um, and then I'd stop going to lessons, have them stop, go and just play up to the age of 10. When you, when you, when you educate a kid, they say zero to six, I think it's more up to uh, zero to 10. And then once they have that foundation, there, there's, only incremental improvements in terms of what they're capable of doing later on in life. So instead of confusing the heck out of them, we give them that foundation and let them see what direction they take uh, the sport. Um, you know, we use, I, I use the phrase on the show a bunch already, there's such an inertia for success that we often forget about development with these young kids with sports. So fill their brains with the good stuff until age 10 and step away, leave them alone, let them play and see where they take the game. I think we'd be surprised um, as, as adults. That's how we played. Right, there weren't there weren't a lot of yep. adults around when we were showing up at the playground, and oh no, and uh, there wasn't specialization. It was just you played, you played, you well, played. No, it was the opposite. We out. played to get away from the adults, and they they let us play to get away from us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, but there was that you know you had your you had your place for yeah. little leagues and, and basketball and whatnot, but you also had places where you were playing with your friends, and you learned just as much there. And you were you were forced to learn there. You were forced to teach yourself. You're supposed to help coach each other play hard other type of stuff and that stuff's lost nowadays i like we go if, and i could my kids would be fine with it but if i took a bunch of kids to the park and said play they would just stare at me Be like i can remember the day them. my dad i i totally agree uh i was fortunate in the uh i still have this memory uh the, the day my dad realized i was left-handed and he said well you know We'll, turn, we'll take this glove back and we'll go get you a, you know, a left-handers glove. And, uh, just with my hitting and my, you know, throwing. And then, uh, my dad worked during the day. And during the summer when we had recreational leagues, my mom went to the games and she knew nothing about sports. She was just there to support me. And I learned from playing with my friends playing on the in the rec leagues during the summer and just being you know one of the guys and that's how i learned basketball of the best you know basketball hoop you know mounted above the garage door you know how many kids showed up at the at, at my at my driveway when that basketball hoop first went up where did i learn how to shoot in my driveway and in gym class from a gym teacher yep so I'm sorry if I stepped on you, uh, Dave. No, it um, sounds like I, I sparked something inside you, and that's what this introspective session is all about, right? <laughs> yep. And this leads us to our third question. Uh-huh. And 
I will go with Dave this uh, on this first. What has been the most unexpected reward you've received or experienced having chosen your path thus far? The positive thing, memory, or inspiration that always seems to keep you motivated. Let's see. So, yeah, mine, mine would be a recent one. I've, I've had a lot of good experiences. I've had a lot of good experiences as a coach, but moving in the direction no, I, we've I, had now, it's, I mean, it's some, been uh, something special because grown. Like I, know I would say coaching, working with kids is rewarding and, and, and whatnot. And I've, you know, worked with kids in law enforcement and in coaching. So I know that's rewarding. But, and especially for you, because you've done it a lot. Um, what the, I'm going to give you a selfish one. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to give you a selfish one. Yeah, I'm going to be a little selfish right now. So I have, uh, I'm in the process right now, and I do, I have to write a little bit every morning. I have a old, uh, I say old, former professor, former minor league baseball player with the Tigers, was a, was a product of the 60s. I uh, met him when I was in college. He was a professor. Um, never identified himself as a former professional baseball player, but took a liking to me. And we had a lot of good conversations. Never about baseball. Every now and then he, we talked. I didn't come to realize that who he was until I think my junior or senior year when I was becoming a draftable prospect. And he, he had some conversations with me about it because he knew what that was about. Um, really befriended me. But um, he's kept tabs on my career. And he just, he's a sociologist. And he's been, um, he marveled at, uh, kind of like when Gary said he went to college. I, I was, you know, I, I thought she'd be a lawyer, doctor, teacher. I had one faction pushing teacher, one pushing lawyer, one pushing doctor, and I didn't want to do any of the three. Um, he encouraged me, as my parents did, to, to play um, and to coach. But he just recently um, re-entered my life, uh, I would say, probably about a, right at the start of the pandemic. Um, we had a, uh, a conversation. We had, hadn't talked in a couple of years, nothing, not on purpose, just you know, running in different directions. And he... Uh, was following my, as he says, my eclectic background in sports. And he wanted to know if I could articulate where I started and how I got here and just fill in the spaces in between. And uh, I kind of joked with him. I said, it goes back to my favorite fictitious character, the Mad Hatter. I begin at the beginning. I go till I come to the end and I stop. That's my, my philosophy on, <laughs> on stuff. But what he offered me was he's, he thought that my background was so unique Um in baseball specifically, um, that he wanted to do an oral history on me, and he felt that it was an interesting enough background, not just to do the oral history, but to present it at the Baseball Hall of Fame, this coming uh, this this coming induction ceremony. So we're trying to finish it right now, and uh, so it'll be a part oh, of man. the Hall of Fame, the Baseball Hall of Fame. So, um, which I thought was neat because you know, as a, as a kid growing up and you're playing professional baseball, and you that's the goal. You know, the mathematics behind it is just. You know, it's, it's, it's tough to even fathom getting in. But, um, yeah. you know, with my direction, as he said, he goes, you never stop moving forward. And he goes, and here we are right now. So um, we just had to do every every night he sends a question in the middle of the night. And when I wake up, first thing I've got to do is write on it, kind of flush out my. Oh, so he, he, it's kind of like your, your segment. We don't get prepared. It's like, or Gary's top five. But but now it's it's defining my life. So it's kind of, it's a neat honor, a, a, a tremendous honor. And it's, but it's a tremendous undertaking too. It's, it's been the toughest thing I've ever done. Um, and that's kind of putting the microscope on me and answering why, 
you know, I made these. What influence did I have? It's, but he, he's phenomenal at asking questions. So that would be mine. It's, and it's called Nine Magazine. Um, and it's, uh, it's part of the Baseball Hall of Fame they present every year. It's writers and you know, authors, you know, you name it, historians. So that's, that's, I would say that would be my answer. So to be presented this, it's either going to be, yeah, probably going to be finished by the time this induction ceremony comes. So, um, so that, that's my big one, I would say that keeps me, keeps me motivated. It's reminding me of the past successes, the past, you know, hardships, the past issues, the good stuff, the bad stuff, and, and how I got to where I'm at. Today. So, and it's good for my kids. My, my wife's reading it right now too, and my, the kids are too. So it's kind of, it's kind of neat. Well, I, I hope you share it with, uh, me and Gary, if you haven't already, please share it. Um, and I, I think have, it's really important. I haven't read the Gary chapter yet. I think it's really also important. I have a um, chapter in this book. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important to take uh, opportunities like that. The time kind of it doesn't sound like you're taking a breath because you're too busy, but I I do think it's important to every once in a while take a breath, look back, and look at the the the, the road you 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 walked and what lessons you learned on the way. I think it's, it can be very, uh, uh, very, uh, you can learn a lot from that. It's, and, you know, I, I like the, uh, psych, so, so psychological or sociological terms to describe it. I just know what a, it sounds like a good feeling and a, a something good to do. So, yes. same question to you, Gary. Oh, God. <laughs> sure to let me go first here. I mean, I got I, I can't follow that. Yeah. But, but um, sorry about the whole Hall of Fame. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, I mean, what has been the most unexpected reward you've received? And it doesn't have to be you know a um a reward. Uh, uh, I don't know, like a plaque, like you know, obviously something uh, spiritual or an experience that you had, like like Dave did, um, um, that you've received. Yeah, I got it. Uh, I, I mean, for me, I guess there's two things. Um, but like the, I, I, if I'm gonna pick one, um, I would say the, um, I, I've really enjoyed the uh, challenge of trying to build something from scratch and I really enjoyed the um the difficulty and the grind that comes with that. I mean like I've accomplished um my, my wife and I uh you know my best earning year not I'm not gonna be overly specific, but it's it I've never made money that would be equivalent to even area average, like not one year in my life. And yet with that we've managed to start a business, buy a house I one, but not just one, but two cars in cash without any payments. Uh, we've we've done a lot of things on a fairly small amount of money, and it's very rewarding to know that that's possible and know how to do that. Because later down mm -hmm. the line, when success follows and money follows success, um, you know, I, I look at people who make double what I make and have achieved a third of what I, uh, my wife and I, have managed to achieve. And it's because of the lessons of intentionality that I've 
I've gleaned from never really making a lot of money and not really having a, uh, you know, I don't have like a easy fallback option. You know, it's not, I'm not like a certified like um, IT pro or like a RN. Like I don't have a, I don't have a CDL. I don't have like a professional credential per se. So it kind of keeps me really focused on the venture I've chosen to take because I don't really have a backup plan. <laughs> And um, and as a result, I, I, and because I don't have that backing, I don't have a lot of a, a huge income. So I've had to really learn how to handle myself in a way that uh, yeah, I, I maximize my time, I maximize the money I do make, and I maximize uh, um, the planning that goes into all that. And we've been very successful at that. And and kind of looking back in the last two years. Even though uh, we went on the air February first of two thousand twenty one, um, months before that, you know, I lost my dad. I, in my opinion, lost the country. <laughs> you know, at least temporarily. Yeah. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. COVID happened. Like I had, a, and before that, a lot of other personal things happened. Like in the previous two years, and despite all that, we got all this done. And just recently, I was kind of looking back on it and saying, you know what, we kicked some serious butt. Like we we won a gunfight with a knife. Is the way I feel. That's the best way I could summarize it. <laughs> I totally understand. Um, as far as you're building something, I the one thing I miss experiencing working as a police officer, um, you never get to see the end result of your work. Right. That's right. You, you impact people's lives for a little while and hope that maybe something you said or something you did help them make their lives a little better. But you, you never really know. Um, so, you know, a lot of people get to build things and look at them or be able to display them and say, I built that. I accomplished this. I did that. But uh, this is a project. Yes. What you're doing here. <laughs> and uh, a little bit. And It's fun, though. Yeah. And, and don't forget the relationships. Uh, and you've shared this with me, the relationships you've made um, with the, uh, the special people and the special impact you've had in your life. Mm -hmm. Would I be working now in this medium had I not met you? Had I gone back to my first love, which was radio and broadcasting, had I not met you? No. Yep. There you go. We're doing a, a, you know, a pipe dream. You know, so thank you. And thank you, Dave, for allowing me to, uh, um, interrogate you a little bit as well. And I'll send you both off with a warning and an right. appreciative thank you. All right. Good. For warning today. I appreciate it. It's good <laughs> to get the week started off right. Thanks, Scott. That's right. You betcha. Have All a right. great day. All right. Well, that was deep today. I wasn't prepared for all that. Yeah, no, he gets a little <laughs> gets a little deep after the weekends. Um, hey, hey. Uh, that's that's okay. It's uh, good stuff. Always, I enjoy his segment. And we we uh, I know if we have to go to commercial. We've got Joe Morgan live from the Final Four next. Right, so he's in New him. Orleans. Let's talk to him right now. And hold with us right now. All right, let's talk to him right now. Uh, get back to some sports. What's up, Joe? Yo, Gary. What's up, man? How's New Orleans? Uh, I'm tired. Does that, <laughs> does that mean anything? 
<laughs> Come on. You tired of jambalaya already and gumbo? Come on, man. <laughs> you just hey, get- man. I think it's hurt. My first trip to New Orleans. Yeah, it's my first trip to New Orleans. Uh, I think it's an awesome city. I'm very impressed by it, actually. I think it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of culture. I've, I've, I've heard negative things about New Orleans most of my life, funny enough. Um, and I, I don't think any of them were correct. This city's been wonderful to me, so tip of the cap. Absolutely. Now that's awesome. I love it. Yeah. I, my wife is, I love New Orleans. she lived in New Orleans for a brief time before we, before we really met and uh she's always told me good things about it i've not made it there yet myself but uh yeah she's always given the positive review a lot of food man a lot of food i've had uh quite a bit of you know crawfish gator the whole thing oysters keep it coming i got a couple more days to go all right i'm coming i'll be right there (laughs) (laughs) canceling the show the rest of the week um no so uh all right so let's let's take it let's take a step back here um so obviously the follow final four games over the weekend uh duke game was tremendous we'll get to that in a second but first the kansas game at because that kind of is a prelude to what i want to ask you about tonight's matchup that that game was a weird one kansas kind of put him on the mat early put villanova on the mat early villanova spent most of the rest of the game trying to fight back at various times cut it pretty close but you know when you get behind by that much and jay wright said as much in his post-game comments uh, when you get behind by that much, that early to such a good team, it, it really is next to impossible to finish the deal. They weren't able to come back. Kansas ended up winning by double digits. Uh, what did you see in that game, given that game was probably the less hyped of the two? Yeah, look, Kansas jumped on them early. You know, it was um, it was a 10-0 run to, to start the game, and Abaji had two quick threes. I think he was um, initially 4-4 four for four from beyond the arc. He was fantastic in that game. Um, and, and I think without Justin Moore for Villanova, I think they were, you know, he's their second leading scorer. And obviously he was out with the, with the injury and they, they just didn't have a second guy to go to. I, you know, they could really get him a bucket. Gillespie kept him in, you know, they, they, it was 19 uh, point lead there for, for Kansas in, in the first half and they were able to get it to 11 before half, which was almost like, well, you know, I think we got a ball game here. And they actually got it to six in that second half, and a lot of it had to do with Gillespie, but I just think Kansas's firepower was too much, and McCormick down low, I mean, I think he had 25 in that game. He was fantastic. I just thought, you know, overall, I, I, I did not realize, quite frankly, how good Kansas is. Um, when you're watching them in person, it's definitely a little bit different, and you're able to notice some things. I think it's a really, really good basketball team. I think Bill Self has done a great job with it. Um, I do think if Justin Moore is there, it's probably a different game, a closer ball game. Yes, right. I, I don't, I don't know if Villanova is going to be able to beat Kansas with him, but um, yeah, look, it was, it was an awesome atmosphere. It was an awesome game. Um, well, I mean, it was, it was an awesome atmosphere. I guess I'll, I'll say that. But it was an awesome way to start off the evening. There you go. Um, what specifically about Kansas was different in person to you versus what you'd seen throughout the year? Yeah, defensively, I think they really will pressure you. Um, I, they, they make it difficult to even complete, you know, kind of normal passes. So they, they're, they're up in you. They're up in your face. And then I thought uh, McCormick down low um, really was the difference. I don't have the stats in front of me um, exactly, but he was grabbing rebounds, and they were they were unable to stop him. And they he talked about it a bit after the game, 
about kind of that inside outside game that they wanted to play and with him down low and Villanova's lack of size really um, once they got it down to him it was really able to open up the floor for others for, for jump shots I just thought there were a lot of open looks for them and I think Villanova really had to struggle for a lot of the shots that they were taking I think Kansas is really athletic um, I, I'm trying to figure out who I'm taking tonight and we can get to that but just watching Kansas up close, you know, when you look at the difference kind of in talent level, I, they're impressive. And I think everything that Bill Self has gone through, I mean, we've, you know, I don't know, I guess I've made some comments too in the past about Bill Self and Kansas. I'm like, are they actually able to get it done? They just have that one national championship in 2008. And, they, and he's impressed me. They've impressed me. So um, I, I think it's going to be a fascinating game tonight, and I can't wait for it. Yeah. The speed, though, that's that's kind of what you're you're alluding to when the I, um, yeah. yeah, you see Villanova, and, and I, I I'm a big Villanova advocate. I think Jay Wright's one of the best in the business. I think Bill Self may be one of the most underappreciated coaches in the business. He's won the Big Twelve, I think, every year he's been there, uh, maybe maybe um, except for one season. The game tonight now kind of shifted into the Carolina Duke game. I, I watched that game. Uh, the last two minutes to me was like a, a Rocky Balboa fight where guys were just slugging it out in the middle of the court. It was three, two. I mean, just went back and forth, and it was dizzying. Do you do you sense a kind of a, a match in speed tonight with Kansas Carolina that you're going to see the same type of speed, same type of athleticism that you're talking about? And who do, who do you think has the advantage uh, going into tonight? Obviously, Selp's got the coaching yeah. experience. North Carolina, no, I mean, they just keep, they nobody could be hotter right now than them. I mean, they, they, they seem to be getting better and better with each outing. What, what was your analysis of Carolina and how did that for tonight? Yeah, to take a quick step back, um, not it wasn't even the last two minutes. Um, that was one of the highest levels of basketball I, I have watched in my, in my life. I, I really do mean that. Um, I have watched a lot of basketball, and that were, were two heavyweights trading blows. For that entire, for the first half as well, but for the entire second half, I mean, that was an atmosphere. I'm just going to tell you, man, like, it was almost an out of body experience because I'm, I'm a bit of a, a nerd, if you will, when a dork when it comes to sports. Like, I just love it so much. It's all I can ever talk about. And all you ever want as a sports fan is to be in those, those moments and those situations. And with 70,000 people in the stands at the Superdome, with two, with the greatest rivalry in college basketball, with the potential end of Coach Krzyzewski's career, and the and the opportunity for his greatest rival to end that career, I, I it was almost like I couldn't believe what I was seeing, and it was absolutely amazing. I think North Carolina, um, you right now you have this thing where it's, I, I think Kansas is a better basketball team, but I think North Carolina is clearly the hottest team in college basketball, and. For me, often in college sports, I will go with momentum. Um, and I, I would probably, if I was a gambling man, I, I would probably pick North Carolina, to be honest with you tonight. Um, I think what Caleb Love d- did, scoring 22 of his 28 in that second half against Duke, was incredible. The look that he had, he's able to create shots. And... In college basketball, and we might have talked about this before, I don't know, I, I do think it comes down to two things. You know, are you able to get stops, and do you have a guy who can get a bucket late? Can he create his own shot? And I think Caleb Love is the guy that can do that for North Carolina. We have watched it. 
then I think Baycott and McCormick will probably almost can't maybe cancel each other out down low because that's going to be a battle of the bigs down low. That's going to be fascinating to see. And then I would just lean towards love. Um, I, I love what North Carolina is doing. It's great to watch. I know they're an eight seed. I know they're their underdog, but man, are they hot right now. Yeah, and I've been impressed. You talk about Carolina, Joe. I've been impressed with R.J. Davis this whole tournament. I think he's yeah likely yeah. going to be the tournament player, uh, the outstanding player of the tournament. I think he's definitely going to be in the running. I mean, he's just – you talk about a guy who can create his own shot. Uh, he's tremendous off the dribble. He's got that little in-between game too, those floaters, those pull-ups. Uh, he, he, he can shoot it from three a little bit. He's just an excellent player. He kind of reminds me, to be honest with you, of a more under control or maybe a little more polished version of what we saw Kemba Walker do for UConn about 10 years ago. Well, and then it's a good example, right, of like nobody thought that UConn was the most talented team in college basketball. Yes. And Kansas clearly is the most is one of the most talented teams that there is, and they're more talented, I think, than North Carolina. If you just look at, look at that lineup, they have guys all over the floor but you have a couple of guys who get hot in the NCAA tournament and, and you can take over. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I keep going back to love, but I'm telling you, man, like there is a look sometimes that, that certain dudes have where it's like, this is my tournament. This is my moment. And I'm telling you, he has it. And if I was a Kansas man, that would scare the living heck out of me. Cause when you need a big bucket late and you, you, you have a guy that's not afraid to do it. Um, that's how you win ball games. That's how you win national championships. Yeah. Um, and I, re- real quick, guys, I, I want to go back to this um, because yeah. I was talking earlier uh, about the atmosphere, and I'm a bit of a romantic when it comes to this stuff. But you let, let's not like, like let's appreciate these moments because it hasn't been like this for two years. We had the 2020 you know tournament canceled. Last year was in a bubble in Indianapolis. It was not the same thing. It just was not. And to have 70,000 people in the stand watching basketball at that high of a level with a rivalry like that was an amazing experience. And it was just so great. I, I think for that's what sports does is it brings everybody together. And it really did in that moment. And I expect it to happen again tonight. Yeah, I agree. Let me give you guys these, these three names here. Think about what if Carolina does complete the transaction tonight, they would have beaten Baylor, former you know champion last year, UCLA. Final Four, yeah. Duke, and then Kansas. That would be their run for their wins to the national championship. Give me one name, both of you guys. I know you kind of you talked about a couple, and I can kind of guess, but give me one name tonight that we walk away saying that's the that's the hero of the game today. Who who you point to on either team? Baycott. I I think I think uh, Baycott, I think he had twenty one or twenty two rebounds in that game. That guy is a rebounding machine. Yeah. Um, and I think he's underrated. I think that's a guy you got to watch for sure tonight. And I know we've we've talked about him, so this is not a surprising statement. I'm just saying when you watch him live, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, he's relentless. What about you, Gary? Who's the one player we walk away talking about tonight? I think it's R.J. Davis. Um, I, I really have been impressed with him throughout the entire uh, playoffs. He he just looks like a guard who is a cut above the rest of college basketball right now. He just looks like a guy who is. I look for poise and I look for pace with, with uh, in college more than anything else. That's what I look for because guys that get a lot done while looking like they're moving at their own pace and not in a hurry are the ones that, in my opinion, especially smaller guards like that, that tend to translate best to the next level. Which is really my biggest interest in watching college basketball is just to see who's going to be playing in the NBA. 
Um, and, and R.J. Davis has reeks of poise and confidence and that level of control and, and body positioning that just screams NBA guard. And, and to me, uh, I think that's going to be the story of this game. I'm, I'm going to be watching for him. I got Let me throw one more name out there then. Uh, one more name would be Remy Martin. Keep that. That's how I was going to expect it, Joe. I was going to ask your opinion of him. That's who my yeah, guy was. I, mean, I, I, think he, yeah. I, mean, I think he's one of those guys, maybe, right, who can like either shoot you into a ball game or out of a ball game. You know what I mean? And he, uh, uh, he's been great throughout the tournament. He didn't do much uh, against Villanova. I just think that's a guy that you can watch because that's another dude who can light it up if you need him to. So, like, Kansas has guys all over the floor, I'm telling you. Like, yeah. we, we don't even talk about Martin at all. Like, they, clearly, this, this is a Kansas team that is loaded. All-Pac-12 performer last year, transferred from Arizona State. Right. He's, a, he's a pro right. Injured a little bit this year. He came to Kansas to win a national title. That was my guy. That was, I was setting it up for, I was going to ask you, Remy Martin, how he looked, if he looked healthy. But I, that's my guy walking away tonight saying that's the that's the guy we walk away talking about. So big, I might have guessed you are Carolina big, uh, Kansas. I, I think one, one thing is, is you got to give Hubert Davis a ton of credit for North Carolina. Following in Roy Williams' footsteps is not an easy thing to do. And no. to be able to go on the run that they're on, that we have to give him credit because he's been fantastic. No question about it. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm going to put you up against it, Joe. You know this question had to come. Who you got tonight? I'll take North Carolina. Let's just do it. Let's go for it. Um, I don't feel great about it, but <laughs> sure, I'll take North Carolina. All right, Dave, what about you? I got Kansas tonight. I'm going Kansas. All right. I think uh, it's going to be a bloodbath, though. It's going to be fun to watch. Yeah, I'm uh I'm going with North Carolina as well. Um I'm gonna break the tie. I'm going North Carolina. I uh like I said, I'm I'm on the Davis bandwagon here and I and I'm gonna ride that to, to the end. He's been the biggest impression on me this whole tournament has been the the play he's exhibited. He's had I think two or three thirty point games already. I mean that's that's and those are rare in, in college basketball. The thirty point games are hard because it's eight minutes shorter and the shot clock is 40% longer so it's a big big difference and you know to do that multiple times is impressive to me so I'm going to say I'm going to ride the hot hand I got the Tar Heels tonight Nice go. It's nice going to be a lot of fun guys but this is, uh, yeah, this is a wonderful experience I'm, I'm so glad that uh, that we're basically back to normal here Oh thank God Sports has helped us get through it Absolutely it always does It's going to be a road race Stretch that neck out You're going to be going back and forth Like a ping pong match tonight I'm guessing games in the 90s There we go Alright well good stuff man Um, We will talk to you again soon Thanks Joe Thanks guys have a nice day Alrighty there we go That's Joe Morgan Daily Wire Good to talk to him Alright let's take a break Come back we'll do hour two Top five Gary H. Show Here on the Cave This is Cave Sports Rewind I'm Rich Anselmo On this day in 1974, many know that Hank Aaron was the first player to tie and break Babe Ruth's all-time home run record. However, most didn't know that the historic tying home run came on opening day. On this day in 1974, Hank Aaron and the Atlanta Braves played the Reds in Cincinnati. It was in that game that Aaron hit his 714th career home run. The historic home run came in Hank Aaron's first at bat of the 1974 season. Jack Billingham was the pitcher that gave up the home run. There was no better place for this incredible moment to happen than in Cincinnati, 
Opening day is even an official holiday in the city, complete with a parade. That great opening day moment almost never happened. Prior to the season opener, the Braves management was worried that Aaron would not only tie, but break the record in Cincinnati. They were so concerned that he was going to sit out the first series of the season until the team returned to Atlanta. The Braves were forced to play Aaron in at least two games of the three-game series. Hank Aaron would not hit another home run until April 8th in Atlanta. That home run would be his 715th and broke Babe Ruth's all-time record. Aaron retired after spending the 1976 season with the Milwaukee Brewers. When his career was over, Aaron had 755 career home runs. I'm Rich Anselmo and this is The Cave, Orange County's conversation station. Welcome to The Gary Aid Show on The Cave. Available at ktalkradio.com, the Talk Radio app, Apple CarPlay, or by saying, Hey Alexa, play Talk Radio. Want to join in the conversation? We'd love to hear from you. Call us at 845-734-CAVE. Now, here's your host, Gary Aid. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. It's time for King Talk Radio's Top 5. Alrighty, Dave, what have we got for the Top 5 today in the second hour of the Gary H Show here on the Monday? What's going on? Top 5 today, now we're going to go right to the NCAA, and it's going to be a little different format with it today. We're going to give you five things that we think are the Top 5 I guess it's going to chronicle the state of college sports right now, specifically college basketball. So we're going to give you the top five items that should be presented to the NCAA to make college basketball even better. And basically, they're standing in the way of it right now. So um, I put a little little project onto Tanner, and, and here's how we started this. You know, every, we've got the Final Four going on right now. It happens every year, and the NCAA president, in my opinion, leader of an opaque bureaucracy. Yes. Claims to be in charge of college sports. He steps up at the you know at the podium and gives the news conference. It's kind of like the state of the union, but it's the state of the game, and that's basically what he does. Um, it's very little value to anyone. The media is not able to ask probing questions, um, and he's very artful at dodging any questions that place responsibility on anyone. I mean, the 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 NCA is, is I guess the word the best word is opaque. You know, they they like to kind of move it around. So we, we're going to throw some topics at you. And want to get your opinions on um, how this, how how we could make it better. So Gary Aid is now going to be dictating to the NCAA how they can make it better. Um, Coach K threw a little little fire at him. I don't know if you heard that in the press conference where they need a college basketball commissioner. It sounded like he was throwing his hat in the ring, um, which wouldn't surprise me. So um, first thing is we're going to start a little soft, although the, the topic is hard. Um, you know, it's time to get serious about physical on-court play. That's the topic. Um, they had a a movement a year ago called Freedom of Movement Initiative. New rules to allow more uh, fluid play, more dribbles, more drives. Made it harder on the defense to, to body people up. So they, they reduced contact. So the question for you is, it's time to get serious about 
physical on-court play. Where do we take the game in terms of physical on-court play? Oh, man, I don't know that I want to see that because, I mean, I mean, all you're going to do, and, and, you know, I'm no big fan of college basketball, as everyone knows. It's not one of my top sports. But um, the one thing it has going for it uh, is there are a lot of people, millions of them, who like it specifically because it's a wholly different style of basketball, more of an old school style of basketball in terms of the on-court product than what you see in the NBA. And most of that is tied up in the fact that the games are lower scoring, they're slower paced, they're more physical, you know, they're, they're, there's less freedom of movement, and there's a huge section of the basketball-loving audience that likes that. And... I think the worst thing the NCAA could do would be to try to be more like the NBA because all you can, the best you can achieve is a lower skilled, lesser version of that product. And and as we know from viewership of minor league sports in this country, um, if you're not the best at what you do, your viewership reflects that. So in my opinion, that would be the worst thing the NCAA could do would be to uh, try to make their game more like the NBA. I think they're they're, they're inviting disaster by doing that. So you think get back to a little bit more physical play? Is that what you're? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think so. I think you you have to uh, you yeah. have to be decidedly different. Um, I would say along those lines, this isn't really physical, but re- a reduction in the shot clock I think is long overdue. Thirty five seconds is entirely too long. I think it needs to be about twenty eight. That's the number I've always thought. Um, but you know, a little more than the pros. But I mean, less than thirty. I mean, thirty five is ridiculous. It's just too long. Oh yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, like eighteen. <laughs> You're nuts. Let it fly. <laughs> oh God! When you think about it, and I say that kind of tongue in cheek. So if the clock, if the shot clock's thirty five seconds, offensive teams try to score in the first third or the last third. The middle third is kind of a wash. So, um, so that's that's kind of where you'd see offense change. But they try to score in the first eleven seconds or the last eleven. The middle, they're just it's false movement for the most part. But um, yeah, I mean, so the NCAA tried to freedom of movement, and it actually worked in reverse. Sixty-six points per game was the average in this year's Sweet Sixteen, and it's the lowest scoring output since 2015. And the only other years where it was even lower was 2010, 1980, and 1999. So their rule did not help the freedom of movement. Um, So uh, another rule change that you know, once you want to get your opinion on, uh, four quarters instead of two halves. Uh, The quarters now. Going to quarters, they're saying would allow more clock plays. Now, this is not the NCAA proposal. This is the Gary H. show. Yes. You get more clock plays. You allow team fouls to be reset after the first and third quarter. After It would be after five team fouls. Now you'd shoot. So you'd get less stoppage and less free throw shooting. Um, and then fouls limit the offensive team's ability to get two or three points on a possession. Yes. So, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to get that three. So... The, the proposed Gary A. rule change is four quarters instead of two halves. I think college basketball may be the only entity in the world now that plays by halves. Even high schools don't anymore. Yeah, you know, I, I, I that's an interesting point, that last thing you mentioned. Um, I'd be curious to see that play out, maybe in the preseason, to see what effect it really does have on the amount of time, the amount of stoppage in play. Uh, the amount of you know free throws and whatnot, um, you know, because I mean that's something. Because I, I mean that people complain about that in the NBA too, which of course already plays that way. So I, um, I, I wonder 
if it would really move the needle. But I'm not against it. I mean, you know, it, it might end up. Well, I guess what I'm saying is, it can't hurt. It might help. I mean, at the at worst case scenario, it ends up being semantical. Best case scenario is it shaves 10, 15 percent off the length of these games at the end, and and it makes the games flow better. Uh, maybe gives you a little bit more, um, you know, in-game adjustment opportunity as a coach. Uh, so yeah, I'm all for that. I think that would be a, uh, you know, that's that's a tweak. That's a that's just a tiny little of a, a twinge, if you will. It's not really a huge move, but uh, I don't see any drawbacks to it. Yeah, I would I would give that a shot, absolutely. Okay. How about uh, number three now? Advancing the ball to midcourt late in the game. So, you know, when NBA yes. teams call a timeout. Oh, God, yes. They get it. Come on. That would have, it would, now we, we would never have the Christian Leitner, Jalen Suggs moment, possibly, but, I mean, uh, that's two you know, this shot. years. Like, I mean, like, I know. we would get game ending ending shot attempts almost every close game that way oh god yeah they, they should have done that a hundred years ago that that's one of the rules that drives me crazy about college basketball i absolutely hate that so absolutely I do. yes <laughs> my argument when someone threw it up to me what about the leitner suggs i think you would have even more exciting end game late end game plays if it were moved up to that we'd have we'd be talking about 20 of them instead of just two absolutely. because now you're you know, you're not throwing the hail mary length of the court Okay, here's here's one that that I like. So, um, widen the lane. Now, the, the the part that makes me laugh is the rules committee moved the three point line back, but they didn't widen the lane. The two of them are supposed to go hand in hand. It's yes. it's a spacing issue. So, yes. our suggestion with number four is widen the lane. Bigger bodies, you know, if they want free flowing movement, like they say, then make the lane bigger, spread it out. So that's our question to you, not to push a, push your direction in any way, but widen it maybe not to the nba but may, yeah i mean nba or fiba line either one that hexagonal yeah i don't like the hex shape i mean if you're gonna do that go the nba uh that hex shape always drives me crazy it just looks weird um i never really adjusted to that but yeah no i i, I yeah if you're gonna move the line back um then then by all means i i don't really think you need to move the three-point line back in college i think the shooting percentages are low enough that like you know it's just gonna make it make it worse unless unless your goal is to curtail the number of threes being taken by making it even less of a high quality shot then then yeah obviously you know, that would that accomplish that what's that well you know how that goes just like the first one the first year like rick patino revolutionized the game of basketball they they averaged eight attempts per game at providence and that was like oh my gosh that's way too many now teams are taking you know 30 to 40 in a game and what happened is more bad shooters started taking the shots it's just it's the way of the world so okay number five for for you and, and we see this a lot and i i always marvel at this and i'm not i was no saint on the sideline but in games i, I was more concerned about coaching my team and then really learning the referees, the way they were going to call the game as individually and as a group. So just asking questions early so I could make adjustments with my team. Never called the referee ref. I always called them by their first name, um, learned their first name before. So the, the, the last one, number five, is bench decorum. Um, interactions with, with officials should not be discouraged, but you see some of the behavior of coaches and even players now. Um, and I'm not the biggest fan. You know, I'm not, I, 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 I I don't like how some of that stuff goes, but people charging officials, acting like maniacs, throwing coats and, and this is on both the men's and women's side. Um, you know, it's, it's, I know the game's emotional, but, um, I'm siding with officials now. I don't think they should have to deal with that kind of abuse oh, yeah. as long as they're getting that way. So 
bench decorum should be a focus um, and negative interaction with the officials should be at least halted or deterred a little bit. So, so I mean, it, how? I, I, I mean, I'm not against it conceptually, but like, what are we doing here? Are we kicking coaches out? Are we throwing more tees? Are we uh, like, what, what's what's the method of enforcement? I suppose is what I'm asking in this proposal. Because yeah, I'm I'm for it. I, I I hate talking about refs. I think it's the biggest waste of time ever. Um, so yeah. like, I think it's I think it's immediate. You you, you get uh, you get teed up. You know, you you and you, you do enough of those and. It stops. I think it's a bad. The, my biggest thing is it's a bad look for the game. That's partially why. If they can get, you can't coach mad. If you can get pissed off at somebody and coach, God bless you. I could never do that. But um, I think it's a terrible look for the game. And you see I these agree. kids. You see these. I'm watching these tournament games, and you see coaches like it's their birthright to go after the referees like right away, every single call. Well, I like, got a um, sort of a unique. Uh... I got sort of a unique approach to enforcing this, sort of an end yeah. around, if you will. I don't think – I mean certainly you can – because they already do. They tee up coaches when they get out of hand and you know, extra free throws, whatever. I don't really think that's the problem. I think the problem starts with all the outside influences that everyone has, which is it's become so fashionable and so consistent to be a Monday morning quarterback against referees on every talk show and every blog and every social media site all over the world every day, 24 hours a day. I think that the the leagues, uh, in this case the NCAA, which of course uh, you know has the rights that they sell to the highest bidder, the networks, any of the controlled media, which is the lion's share of the media that covers these things in an impactful way, so your CBS, your TNT, your ESPNs, all those. Anyone on their platforms that starts complaining and talking about the refs, the platform should be fined per instance. Watch how fast this stuff dies down if the uh, flamethrower that starts all the man-on-the-street conversations, the media, is effectively financially barred from talking about refs and complaining about refs. Everything else will go away real quick. That's called cutting the head off the snake. That's the head of that snake right there is the media flamethrowers talking about it nonstop. Enforce that, and the rest of this goes away. Yes, that's, that's, I hadn't thought about that. It's a good, good point because um, it does. It's, it spreads the word, and it, it allows it to be everybody's birthright to get after it. So I don't want to hear Max Kellerman cry about refs. Like, what does he know? Uh, or, and even if he knows something, who cares? Right. Well, there's yeah. There, we can shorten that up too, right? But uh, but like you know, even if he knows something, who cares? Like, did you watch the game specifically looking to be offended by a ref? Get over it. Move on. Refs miss calls. Players miss free throws. Coaches miss substitutions. It's part of the game. Leave it alone. I like it. That's a good point. Okay, we got one more bonus one for you. This is my favorite, and all this stuff stemmed from the Freedom of Movement Act that I talked about earlier. So yes. the NCAA, the hypocrisy of the NCAA, how that's what they wanted their focus to be. And every rule change they made after that went totally against what their whole philosophy was, freedom of movement. The last one is my favorite. It could be the biggest hypocrisy of all. So they've got to make an adjustment to the charge and block call. Um, and we have a suggestion here. So they want to reduce physical play. That's the whole idea of the Freedom of Movement Act. Yet they'll celebrate the collision um, that happens 
when a help defender comes over and stops the ball after the on-ball defender is beaten, and that collision is ultimately going to happen. I mean, it happens 20 times a game. Some no calls, some charges, some blocks. So our thought is, first we've got to address, we've got to get clear definition as to charge and block. And what our suggestion was is that, you know, as the rule's written now, um, you know, it's it's the ability, the, the help defender is allowed to get into position before the offensive player leaves the floor. That's how the rule's written in the books. Yes. It's standard for the help defender to come home, boom, it's collision, yep. uh, begins the upward motion. Um, so to reduce collisions and to increase better on-ball defense, and, I, and I've, I've talked to officials about this, and they would totally agree with this point. I've talked to 12 different officials on this at the higher levels, um, that a charge can only happen with an on-ball defender, that a charge cannot happen with a help defender sliding over after somebody gets beat and sliding in with that you know that moment of pause decision. Do they, did they leave their feet before they slid in? Are they outside that little arc? Um, because that's inviting. They, they were saying on the average about 20 a game that that stuff happens and it goes i mean it's a third a third a third and every time one happens like you said with the with the questioning the referees that's the source of all evil right there that is probably the most argued debated i mean call where everybody's yelling at the ref um so that's our question to you charge the charge and block first do you feel like it has to be redefined or clearly defined and then maybe redefined to support this whole you know freedom of movement yeah um or do you like it how it is you know the charge and block call on all levels of basketball has been and continues to be without a doubt the most um difficult thing to enforce and call so i feel like any significant alteration to this is is just inviting more confusion uh, and more frustration, not, not less. I, like I, I think the intentions are good. I particularly like that idea of uh, on-ball defender. I'd probably be okay adopting that. That's fairly cut and dry. Um, I wouldn't go much beyond that because I think part of the the, the the crux of the problem with this charged block situation is it's so bang bang. It's so arbitrary. It's so well, arbitrary is the wrong word, but it's so um, you know nuanced to begin with that I feel like any attempt to change it is only going to confuse the already confused nuance of it. So I think something as cut and dry as only on-ball defenders, I think that's yeah. fine. Uh, that's our only change that we wanted to make, too. Yeah, just yeah. Yeah, because that's, that's easy enough to enforce, and I do agree that that would be a nice... Uh, um, now, the only thing about that is the flip side to play devil's advocate. They really, I mean... I mean, we we teach team defense, right? Like you want guys to come over and help, uh, and because yeah. th- so to kind of counterbalance that, wouldn't you also have to give more leeway and then inviting more judgment call on things like help defenders coming over and maybe like you know having more contact because instead of squaring up their shoulders and taking the hit in the chest, they're going to now try to maybe angle their body to come for like a weak side shot contest or block thereby risking more fouls like wouldn't you have to counterbalance that too i would think i think so. there'll be some, yeah there, there's always going to be unintended consequences with stuff like that but that's i think that's where when they have these committee meetings like we always used to have them as head coaches be head coaches officials not just from our conference but other conferences to discuss this stuff this stuff is not even being brought up in in meetings and it seems to be the source of contention with 
physical play, questioning of referees. We talk about widening the lane. Um, I like it. It needs to be outside the lane. That would be my, my preference if we were going to set to help defenders can do it, but it's got to be outside the lane because most guys aren't leaving their feet to dunk. And that's where the problem happens. When they have that little dotted circle, I mean, guys are leaving their feet to dunk. When they're, if it's the widened lane and they're leaving outside the lane, guys aren't dunking for the most part um, in that regard. So I don't know. There, there's some stuff to look at, but we thought we'd throw it out. But I, I like the on ball one. That, to me, that, that toughens up defense. It's yes. a source of pride to beat off the dribble. We do encourage, obviously, you, you encourage help all the time. But the question that actually Tanner asked, he goes, what about our run and jump? How do you designate? Because on our run and jump, if we get beat off the dribble, the next guy immediately comes over, and then our jump person runs to the fifth option in the offense, and everybody rotes, rotates. Right, so right. it's there's, there's some things to work out there, of course, but uh, we, we thought at least need to be discussed. It's not being discussed I right mean, now. I think the uh, I think the easiest way to adjust to that kind of to my it's kind of a similar point that I was making a second ago. I I think the easiest way to adjust is to just instruct the refs again. It's subjectivity again, but. Uh, be more um, stringent in your uh, contact calls when there's a help rotation. If it's a help defender coming over to try to make a play, knowing they can't uh, square up and take the charge, uh, you know, give them a little more leeway. You know, if they happen to brush someone, you know, don't don't necessarily call it. Like, let, let it be more of a substantive amount of contact that uh, impacted the shot. I always thought that that really should be the um, underlying governing uh, rule in terms of applying officiating judgment to contact is did it organically and truthfully affect the shot? Because most of us can, you know, see when someone's playing Hollywood, and like the, the truth is, when I see someone like the size of I, I don't know someone the size of like Steph Curry foul Joel, someone the size of Joel Embiid, and they call a foul. It's like, uh, but it didn't do anything, <laughs> you know. Like, like it didn't change anything. I, I think maybe more of that would be helpful. Yeah, no, that's that's good points. They, they were tough. That we kind of threw match. Of all the ones we threw up, which one would you say would be your? If you, if you had the committee oh, to easily, discuss what would be your first? Uh, easily the the uh, advancing the ball, uh, past half court thing. No doubt about yeah. it. That, that need to be done forty years ago. <laughs> like that's without a. Uh, I'm, I'm just gonna give a second one because that one's like so far in the way. That one is probably my least favorite rule in all of college basketball. It, it absolutely drives me crazy, and it always has. Um, so it's almost not fair. <laughs> uh, a second one would be I, I kind of like the off-ball uh, only on-ball defender can draw a charge thing as long as the uh, sort of counterbalance we've been discussing the last few minutes is properly addressed. I think that's a cool rule too. Yeah, no, there, there, there were some good ones. Prompt some conversation. That's all. That's all we're suggesting. Conversation, conversation. Talk it through. Be smart about it. But watch Mike Shashevsky be the new commissioner. Oh, that'd be NCAA. awesome. That'd be tremendous. Because he, his question he asked, he said, "I know Adam Silver. Who does Adam Silver go to in the NCA when there's a when there's a question, problem, adjustment, point of contact? Nobody knows. Mm-hmm. I talked to him more than anybody in the country. So he he put that out there. He's not." Nothing that he says is by accident. No. And uh, Jerry Colangelo was sitting right behind that bench during the, the game, the head of USA Basketball, and uh, guarantee that's an order of business in this offseason right here, that uh, the NCAA names a, a commissioner, a czar uh, of, of basketball. His suggestion was every sport should have one. 
every sport should have one, a, a leader, instead of just one dictator for life, I guess. So we'll see what happens. I, I don't, could be I Coach don't disagree. Yeah. I don't disagree at all. Um, I think it would be uh, it would make a lot of sense to have someone in charge. I, the NCAA is is worthless. Is what it boils down to. And we've been saying that forever. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, let's go ahead and take a break. We'll come back. We'll do some baseball center fielders coming up with James Kelly. Also, a couple other updates. And my Mets. The Mets are going to met. I was trying to avoid that today, but we got to talk about it with baseball. All righty. Looking forward to the start of the uh, 2023 baseball season when the Mets uh, will project to have Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom, maybe. Um, <laughs> I can't take it anymore. I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm done. I'm absolutely done. I can't do it's it. It's rough. It's rough, man. <laughs> it, it just feels like, you know, since, let's say since 2018, you could take Jacob DeGrom when he's on the field, which hasn't been, you know, entirely often enough. But you could take these last few years and put Jacob DeGrom in that, like, mythic dominating category oh. alongside guys like like Nolan Ryan. Koufax like that's what we're talking Bob about. Gibson, right. Jacob DeGrom. Yeah. yeah, and you're, you're like, you know, if you just went into MLB the show and created a player and just gave him 99 attributes on everything, he probably still wouldn't be as dominant as Jacob deGrom. Is. True. And it's just, it feels like we're getting robbed of that. And it's just every year, it's just, well, it really hurts. It I'm, really hurts. I'm just tired of the being so wrong on the diagnosis of these injuries. Like, like, just tell me the truth. Like, don't tell me it's a two-week cautionary rest, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to hear it anymore. Tell me his arm's about to fall off and he may never pitch again. Just say that from the beginning. Like, I'm so yeah, that, over this. This was a that, year that's ago. That's the Yankees do a lot, too. Oh. And it's really frustrating. When we were talking about Luis Severino a couple years ago, like, oh, he's got, you know, a, a general arm soreness we're going to shut him down for a little while oh well, now it's a, a shoulder problem and now it's an elbow problem and now it's a back problem right, right. it's like just tell me what's wrong tell <laughs> right, me what's wrong right, with him. Right. How, how long is it going to be tell yeah. me just straight up right you know i'm a grown-up like i can take the news like let's let's yeah. hear it like because like the worst part is getting like four months you get four weeks down the line for jacob the we reevaluate oh no it's not looking right let's wait another four right. weeks we go right. another month it's still not looking right like just tell me. Just tell me what right. the problem is. Right. And, you know, because it's, it's it's one of two things. You're either lying to me or your medical people are so incompetent that they actually believe this nonsense. Like, yeah. So, and, you know, which one is we it? We know what's wrong with Jacob DeGrom. We know what's wrong. We know the injury. But it's, it's the timetable that's like we're, we're going to reevaluate in a month. Like, what's going to change in a month? What's going to change? How well is he going to heal himself in a month? Do we have to start doing treatment now? Is it kind of like... Is it like a Fernando Tatis Jr. situation where you can either elect to have this surgery and you're going to be out for a couple months, but then you're going to be fine after that, or you can just you can try to play through the shoulder injury and and it might you know it might flare up again and you'll miss another two weeks and then you'll get back on the field and it might flare up again. Most of the time, I'll just I'll elect for the surgery if if that option is available, depending on the timetable for recovery. Uh, if you can avoid Tommy John surgery, that's like that's a year and a half right there that you're avoiding so that that was Masahiro Tanaka he had a, a partial UCL tear in his elbow for the entire time he was with the Yankees and he just he it never got worse so he just kept pitching through it um but if, if this is what it's going to be with Jacob DeGrom this year where 
you're just you're looking at it and it's four weeks down the line, four weeks down the line, four weeks down the line. That's gonna drive me crazy. That's gonna drive me crazy. Yeah, no, it's and now Max Scherzer and it's just like God man, like just like I can't take it. I, I just uh like I was so excited for the start of this season and now I'm just like over yet? Like I'm already down. Like it's terrible. Come on. They now now that the, the, I agree with the pitching, but they've got the set. I thought that was a good move. And, and James, maybe talk a little bit. I know that the the trade's a little on pause right now, but talk about the possible Chris Paddock Hosmer move to the Mets because that's the Mets got aggressive oh right God. away when they heard Degrom was down. But talk about that a little bit. Where are we at there? Okay, so it it seems like the trade is just off. It's just not going to happen, which is good for the Mets. Very very good for the Mets because, and I, I think I texted you guys this last week when it came up that. If the Mets traded for not just Eric Hosmer, but also Chris Paddock, I would have laughed so hard. Because that is the definition of the Mets being the Mets. Those are arguably the two biggest underperformers in Major League Baseball. And it's just, when you look at Eric Hosmer, and I want to I make this very clear for Eric Hosmer, because I've had this conversation about a billion times regarding Eric Hosmer, and people would say, oh, well, he's got a ring, he brings leadership, and and he's, he makes good contact, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He's not a good player. He's only going to get worse. Let's compare him <laughs> with Pete Alonso, okay? Average exit velocity. Hosmer's at 90.5, Alonso's at 91. Comparable. K-rate, 17.5 and 19.9. Hosmer's a little bit better. Whiff rate, a little bit better for Hosmer, too. 22.9, 24.9 for Alonso. Hard hit rate is nearly identical at 47%. Launch angle, that's the one. Launch angle, what's the difference between Eric Hosmer's 732 OPS and Pete Alonso's 863 OPS? Eric Hosmer hit a 3.3 launch angle last year. And Alonso was 14.7. And it just, I don't understand how Eric Hosmer, who is now in his 30s, if, if he just never tried to adjust, his launch angle? Is it something he's never attempted to do? Is it not something that he's capable of doing? And before everyone starts to say, like, well, hold on a second. Maybe the Mets are thinking, you know what? The shift's going to be banned next year. Maybe Eric Hosmer's ground balls will start going through. He doesn't get shifted. He doesn't get shifted. He's seen 20% shift, which is well below the average for left-handed hitters, which is 52%. He sees 20% shift, and even still, the difference, if, if the shift is banned and all of a sudden that 20% goes away, the difference between what Joey Gallo will get out of banning the shift and what Eric Hosmer will get out of banning the shift might bump his hard numbers up a little bit. You might see the average go up a little bit. But the plus numbers, where you're compared to how you're doing against the rest of the league, are going to go in the toilet even further. Oh, I hate Eric Hosmer. I hate him. I hate. I could, oh, I could tell. What about the, what about the Yankee Mets? They, they did make a trade this weekend. The Yankees and the Mets swapped relievers. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. What significance does that have, if any, at all? Yeah, I'll say the the Mets got a good one in Jolie Rodriguez. He's a very good left-handed reliever, a very solid middle reliever. He's not going to close games for you. He's not going to set up the closer. Uh, none of that. But you put Rodriguez in in the fifth, sixth inning, he can give you you know four outs, maybe five outs. And, and it's going to be ground balls. You're going to get a lot of ground balls, which works to what the Mets have going on in the infield defense right now with Lindor and, and kind of finding a permanent home for Jeff McNeil at second base uh, and, and Eduardo Escobar at third. So you're going to get a lot of ground balls out of him. For the Yankees, 
I mean, I guess they see something in Miguel Castro that they can fix command-wise, because that's always been his problem, right? He throws hard. He's got great stuff, a, a really good slider. Uh, but the command hasn't always been there for him. So I'm guessing that the Yankees have identified something in his game with Matt Blake who can say, you know what, like we can adjust this, make this adjustment, and you're going to have better control. And if he gets command of those pitches, you could look at maybe like a seventh-inning potential guy because the raw stuff is fantastic for Miguel Castro. It's, it's really good. Um, but but then again, Jolie Rodriguez was a, a death. He was already a finished product. And that's what the Mets got in return. So the Yankees are kind of betting on the upside. The Mets are looking for a little stability in the bullpen. Uh, and I, I think it works out for both teams. I think it's, I think it's a fair deal. Because uh, the Yankees don't need stability in the bullpen right now. They have plenty of stability. Uh, and, and they have plenty of high-talent arms. Uh, even even towards the middle era innings with, uh, with Clay Holmes. That's a really big one this year. Nestor Cortez could find himself in a reliever role if somebody... You know, emerges if, if like a Luis Heel maybe emerges as a fifth starter, uh, and, and you could switch Nestor into kind of a hybrid role, maybe sixth starter some weeks, uh, bullpen arm the next week. Um, I don't know if they would do that, but you could make those changes. You don't have a lack of relievers in the Yankees bullpen that are, are at least going to give you stable outings. Um, I think that's what the Mets are going to get. Nice, a rare win win 16 times the two have traded players since 1966 i think that's the, that was the number thrown out there so it doesn't happen often but uh it sounds impactful for both teams nonetheless yeah what about it's, this? Not, it's not like the yankees and mets were going to make a trade that wasn't a benefit for both teams because you just you yeah. couldn't have the new york media running away with oh look at this the mets fleece the yankees the yankees fleece the mets like if you're a gm you just can't have that you can't have it gary have you followed that the, there's a it's been under the radar but there's that there's been a document floating around about the Yankees and this sign-stealing cheating scandal. Have either one of you caught any of that in the media? Well, I, I, all through? I've really heard is um, Cashman whining about how we'd have more championships if it wasn't for the cheating Astros. That's all I've heard. Yeah, that wasn't a good look. That was not a good look <laughs> at all. Like, well, maybe you'd have more championships if you didn't have nine guys that played the same way and were always hurt. Or maybe if you had like more than one good starting pitcher who's reliable, maybe that has something to do with it, Brian. Just a thought. I don't know. Yeah, that that excuse might work in 2018 if the if the sign stealing scandal comes out. And you're like, well, but we were so close. Literally last year, we could have won the World Series last year. You might get a little sympathy for that, but it's been a few years and you still haven't won. And not only have they not won, but James, you could argue. I think it would be hard to argue any other way that they've gotten worse progressively since then like they they've certainly not been as good as they were in 2018 they haven't advanced as far as they did and and just watching the team there there maybe it hasn't been like drastic regression but it's in the very best stagnation since then the very best yeah it, it feels like the yankees haven't really gone forward right at all and and that's kind of been even signing garrett cole uh, you sign Garrett Cole and you think, all right, this is going to be a, a big step forward for us. And then you lose Luis Severino to injury. That makes a big difference. And, and injuries have played into it, sure. But it's not like the guys who came up behind, uh, you know, you look at Miguel Andujar going down, you get Gio Urshela in there. Uh, it's not like these guys have performed poorly. Uh, last year they did. Last year pretty much everyone across the board had a down year except uh, Stanton and Judge for the most part. Um, but it's just, it, it feels like we're kind of stuck in that rut where we're, you know, I always say the postseason is kind of a crapshoot, uh, which oh, it yeah. is. That's, yeah, 
it, it is in baseball. It's just about getting hot at the right time. But it feels like the Yankees getting there, just getting to the postseason, it feels like it's been just the same every single year. And, and we come limping into the postseason last year uh, when we had a, a pretty good chance to snag at least home home field advantage in the wild card game. And, and you look at their record against the Orioles last year, and you're like, all right, that was the difference between us winning the division and playing in the wild card game. And it's, it's rough. It's rough to look at in, in retrospect. And you forget about those games during the year, like the time that the Yankees get swept by the Detroit Tigers. You forget about those times. It's like, all right, whatever. It was like a, a weekend series in June. Who cares about that? But then you look back at the end of the year, and I, like, if you're not going to sweep every team, obviously. Bad teams win in baseball all the time, but to get swept by a team that bad or to play 500 ball against the Baltimore Orioles, that's what hurts that bottom line when you're looking at wins and losses. That's where you lose those. That's why the Red Sox killed the Orioles last year. That's yep. why they had home field advantage. Yep. That's right. Gary, I was going to share with them and see if, if Gary and I were going back and forth on the weekend about uh, the Oakland A's trade uh, of Manaya. Oakland A's are they're the greatest minor league system in Major League Baseball right now. They feed everybody. But listen to this, James. I want to get your reaction to it. Carlos Correa makes $35.1 million this year. Garrett Cole, oh, yeah. 36. Rendon, 37.5. Seager, 37.5. Max Scherzer, 43.3 million. The entire Oakland A's payroll is $33 million. Those five players, <laughs> yeah. one of them yep. individually makes more than the entire yep. payroll of Oakland. They shifted Manaya to the Padres. Who's next? I mean, that's kind of what I, I don't want to belabor the A's, but who, who's going to go next and who do you think, where do you think they're going? Well, I think the Yankees still want Montas. I know they, the Yankees were kind of in on Manaya, but in arbitration, Manaya got 10 million and Montas got 5 million. So I think they always wanted Montas a little bit more. Uh, and, and also Montas' stuff is just a, a little more pure, a little better, uh, than Manaya's. Manaya throws, you know, his stuff is very good. It's not great, uh, but he throws it all very well. He limits walks. He gets ground balls. He's got a great changeup. His put away splits are even. He mixes his pitches well. Like he's a very complete pitcher. Uh, and, and when you look at Frankie Montas, you're thinking like, wow, like he could just get to that mm-hmm. complete pitcher state. Like this is someone who has eight level stuff. Uh, a fastball that runs into the high 90s. Four good breaking balls. Like he's got that level of stuff, but he just hasn't put it all together yet. Uh, so I think towards the trade deadline, uh, the, the Yankees might make a move on Montas again. Uh, and, and I don't think it's going to happen in the next week or so. I think it's going to be closer to the trade deadline. I think the A's are pretty set to keep Montas for now because uh, he's still not a free agent for two years. But just to go back to the, the payroll point, I think it's even more disgraceful that the A's have cut their payroll to this level than, say, the Rays or the Pirates because there was no there was no hint that the Pirates were going to be competitive. So at least you can understand the mindset. Like, all right, right, right we're not even going to come close yeah. to competing, right. so why would we even bother you know, spending money on the team and, right. and keeping up Brian Reynolds. Like, right. Brian Reynolds is going to get traded by this trade deadline. I would bet almost anything on it because what point would the Pirates have to keep him? What would it do for them? It wouldn't do anything for them. Uh, and, and the Rays have just fully gone into this. It doesn't matter how much we spend. We still win anyway. It doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter for them. When you look at the Oakland A's, they were a good team last year, a really good team, a, a borderline playoff team. And it was the first year they had missed the playoffs in a while. So... If you're the A's, you're thinking we're only a couple moves away from leapfrogging the Astros and leapfrogging the Seattle Mariners and getting back into the postseason and taking our chances in the playoff crapshoot. But 
all of a sudden, Matt Chapman's going to make a little more money. Matt Olson's going to make a little more money. Starling Marte is a free agent. And you see the writing on the wall and say, you know what? Like, we're going to have to spend money to get into that playoff situation. Let's just blow it up. Let's just blow it up. And that's, in my opinion, even more disgraceful than what the Pirates do. Because the Pirates never had a chance anyway. Yeah. Although, of course, I mean, just to be play devil's advocate for a second on the Pirates, you could always make the chicken or the egg argument that the reason they're not competitive is because they don't try to be competitive, too. That's true. And it's, it's player development for them, too. Because there are a lot of teams that will save money in those years and just wait for those prospects to come up and wait and wait and wait. But the Pirates have been so bad. Look at the players that have left the Pirates. The Joe Musgrove, Andrew McCutcheon, uh, Garrett Cole, Jameson Tyone. These are very good players who they did, just didn't develop right. And you saw it with Garrett Cole immediately. There was a point in time where the Yankees could have gotten Garrett Cole for Clint Frazier and Miguel Andujar, but they didn't make that trade. They probably should have pulled the trigger on that trade, but they didn't because Garrett Cole's numbers really weren't all that good. They weren't that great. And then he goes to Houston. They have him start throwing a, a fastball high in the zone with a higher spin rate. And it wasn't just that he was a spider tack merchant. Like, that increase and that change was very real. Right. Very real. And I'm sure that's what the Yankees saw in him, too, that they could change these things about his game and make him an ace-level pitcher, which he wasn't with the Pirates. So that's, you know, you look back at the Pirates, and they were like the last team to the analytics game, too. They say, well, not only are you not spending money on the team, but when you're developing these prospects, you're not developing them well enough to create that cohesive unit like, let's say, the Padres had before they signed Manny Machado, where it's like, okay, the writing's on the wall. We have these guys. They're coming up in the next few years. So we can start making these Manny Machado moves, these big money moves, and, and start getting the supporting pieces around the core that we've already developed ourselves. The Pirates don't do that. They're, well, they try, but they're bad at it. Here we go. All right, James. Good stuff, man. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks, James. Oh. Fired up. Yeah, I'm telling you. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I get have, it. I have to tell you, Dave, I'm really down uh, going into the start of the season now. Like I was really excited, and now I'm really not. <laughs> it's uh, we've got a few days left. Maybe there'll be some some miracles here. But I watched them play the other day, the Mets a little bit, and uh, boy, they swung the bat well. Um, I like that the guys are swinging from Lindor to McNeil to Cano, Alonzo, um, put the bat on the ball. Well, if they're going to have a nice lineup this year, and who knows, the additions to their bullpen may not make the starting pitching as important. That was supposed to be the, the headline, but you know, they get through five the way of the world now. You get through four and you just, your bullpen takes over. So, um, that's some big NBA news for you. I wanted to get your thoughts on it yeah. before we, we got to that. I don't know if I could live the rest of my Monday without hearing your opinion Uh-oh. on this. So, um,